Welcome back to the Autoblog Podcast. I'm Greg Migliori. We have an awesome show for you this week. We're driving a lot of cool things. We've been sitting in a lot of cool things, like the Tesla Cybertruck. This is our first up-close experience with uh, this enormous aluminum wedge-shaped truck, stainless steel. And news editor Joel, editor Joel Stocksdale will tell us what that's like. Uh, West Coast editor and senior editor for all things features, James Rizwick uh, has been living with a wall box. He's going to tell us what that's like for the last year. Uh, we'll drive some cool things like the Honda Prologue, the BMW i5 X1. So with that, let's get right into it. And I will welcome in James Rizwick and Jules Stocksdale. Gentlemen, how are we doing today? Pretty good. Very good. Very good. All right. It is summer-like. It is February 27th, recording this. And my phone says it is... 66 degrees so, so i'm sorry 69 high is going to be 70 i think we've already set the record in metro detroit so what is the temperature in la james 58 i have no idea what it is in la actually i'm outside la there you go. so our we're our weather here in the conejo valley is a little weird but it is 50 we got degrees. 10 degrees on you uh but it's supposed yeah. to maybe hail and it will be a low of 20 tomorrow so not so much here. Not so much yeah, here. That's yeah. where the long term, you guys play the long game. So uh, so I think this is pretty cool. Joel was at the Chicago Auto Show a couple of weeks ago now. And the Tesla, I almost called it the Cessna, the Tesla Cybertruck was there. First of all, why was it there? It just kind of appeared. Was it like an owner or like, how did this thing get there? Did Elon drive to Chicago, eat some pizza and just park at McCormick? Like, what was the deal? Well, Tesla actually had a display at the Chicago show. It was a small one and fairly modest, which actually doesn't necessarily fit with the personality of the company's owner. But there were they had two vehicles on display. They had the updated Model 3 Highland and they had the Cybertruck. And they also had a number of Tesla's Model 3 and Model S in the electric car test drive circuit that was also inside the hall but yeah it was actually a tesla display there and there were even like people there to tell you about the car wow did you know there was actually a tesla uh uh appearance in detroit i didn't totally realize this until after the fact apparently it was part of the um like the electric ride and drive circuit setup and it was factory supported so I don't know. Tesla is doing auto shows and Stellantis isn't. What a what a world. Um, but you sat in the Cybertruck and I have not. I don't think you have, James. Most people probably haven't. What was it like? Well, the inside is a lot better than the outside is what I will is what I will start with. Um, it is kind of what you expect from a Tesla. It is minimalist to a fault and i feel doesn't really actually take advantage of sort of what's great about minimalism is that like minimalism like takes things down to sort of their basics and simplifies things but there's always sort of that nice kind of detail or structure to something that you can really appreciate once you've taken away all the other stuff there's not so much of that in the Cybertruck interior. The Cybertruck interior is pretty much just like flat, sheer edges, kind of like the outside. But they're finished a lot better than the outside. Like it's 
soft touch plastics and like upholstered surfaces and things. The seats are actually quite comfortable. Um, the screen is big and everything is on it. Thankfully, it's a very good screen. It's very bright. It's sharp. Um, it runs extremely smoothly and quickly. It's probably one of the best screens out there. But again, it better be because that's how you're interacting with everything in the car. So that thing better be good. It does have... What? Oh, were you going to ask something, James? Oh, no. Oh. I, I was going to ask about... Um, the one thing I've wondered about it is kind of like headroom. Because it's such an wacky pants roof line. So what's it like in the back seat and in the front seat? So front seat loads a headroom. But that's also mainly because that's kind of where the point of the uh -huh. cabin is. The rear seat, a lot of people have been saying that it's not that bad. I think it's cutting it a little close. It's, it's not as bad as you might think because it does have a glass roof. So you do actually get a little bit more space up there than you think. But it was a fairly small gap between like my head and the roof. I'm about 5'11". Um, so James, I'm guessing your head would probably be touching the roof in the back. Uh, leg room is quite excellent in the back and the seats again are very comfortable, very supportive, lots of leg room, lots of foot room too. So it's pretty easy to s stretch out. I was also quite surprised access is very easy because the rear doors in particular open up to like a full 90 degrees. So it's actually quite easy to get in and out of this truck. Which, again, I, I'm glad because the rear door aperture is not particularly big, so you kind of do need it to open up that far for it to work. But it works. Um, the interior is also... It's probably not as bad outside because you do have the glass roof, but it, it, it does feel very dark inside because um, it is like an all-black interior. And the view forward from the front seats is not great. <laughs> it's got a crazy long dash, but what really is kind of an issue is the front pillars are absurdly thick. And because they are, it's such a low angle, it f you get huge blind spots forward, both left and right. And it's kind of the same deal going backwards as well, because, again, it, it's kind of like the uh, the first generation Honda Ridgeline, where you had those like kind of flying buttress pillars. And so that obscures a whole lot of your rear view. And then, of course, the rear tonneau cover will completely block your rear view and mirror. So it has a digital projection on the screen. And Wait, hold on. The visual is on the screen, not in the not in the mirror. That is correct. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh. It's, it's a little weird. And especially because it's By like... By weird, you mean bad? I'm, I'll reserve total judgment <sighs> for that until driving it. Because, I mean, it's still going to be somewhat up and in the middle. But... But I, oh, I know. Come it, on. You're not trained to for your rear view mirror. The, re the reason the rear view camera works is because it's where the rear view, you are trained as a driver to look up there. I, I, if, if, okay, great. If my daily driver was a 58 Corvette and the rear view mirror was mounted to the dashboard, cool. But that's what not most people are used to. 
So, I mean, every, every, I have, I live in a silly place where I have somehow seen eight cyber trucks and every single one has had that tonneau cover in place. But that means that you're using that, that one screen. Does the, I like, does the rear view camera stay on that screen the whole time and the speedometer and like how much real estate is then left to everything else? That's, oh. Yeah, Not well, good. and also when like every other manufacturer knows how to put it like in the mirror. Um, well, it's not every, but I mean, honestly, it's not every manufacturer knows how to. It's it's all those manufacturers are buying a part from a supplier. Well, GM's I mean, not it, making that thing, you know? Yeah, but it's the same. I mean, it's the same thing. It's like all these automakers know how they can at least get that part, yeah. whether they can make it or not. Um, I, but this is also a company that still refuses to do head-up displays. Um, which is also the case in this. I don't know if it's a combination of trying to be cheap or yes. my or my and <laughs> also probably <laughs> that. Uh, well, and probably a command from Musk that he's like, I don't want a weird little square in the middle of my perfectly oh. smooth, clean dashboard. <laughs> yeah, but um, the, the 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 Model S had a regular IP, as did the Model X. This is this is such it's cost cutting. I'm sorry, like getting people on board that it's somehow minimalist. Yeah, it's minimalist if you remove every single piece of hardware apart from a screen in the interior. Of course it's minimalist, but is that there's a difference between like design minimalism and like budgetary minimalism. Right. You know? Um it's if you if you drive a farm truck from 1938, that's pretty minimalist too. It I, I, I'm sorry. I, I just can't get on board with like th that. We're not going to put the the rearview camera mirror in it. Oh, because of minimalism. Like, uh, no, there's still a mirror back. There's still a regular mirror up there, right? So it's like, no, we're not getting that supplier, and we're oh, not going to put a shifter that... in the car, and we're not going to pay for stocks on the wheel anymore. We're going to put them all on the wheel because now we only have to do two parts, a steering wheel, and I'm sure they would rather not put a steering wheel. Um, and then the, and uh, no, it doesn't. It literally has a yoke, right? But, um, and then, then, the, then the screen. I... Speaking of that yoke. Um, About that yoke. It's, it's better than the one in the Model S Plaid because this actually has like kind of brace bar things across the top and bottom. Mm -hmm. So there is at least something to kind of grab there. It's still very much like rectangular square kind of shape. Mm -hmm. And because the Cybertruck has steer by wire with a very fast ratio, you actually will just kind of have your hands on the wheel. Just it doesn't need it. Sorry. Like, ironically, it doesn't need it because of yeah, like, if, yeah, if I haven't driven a Cybertruck, but if it's the same as the Lexus system, you really wouldn't, you don't really need yeah, it. Yeah, they could have actually gotten away with the old one. <laughs> yeah. um, and fortunately, in this case, getting rid of the stocks and putting like the turn signal buttons and things on the steering wheel works better in this case also, just because, again, you're not really going to be taking your hands off the wheel for over. so your thumbs are kind of always going to be where they need to be. That doesn't work in the Model 3 Highland, which I'm taking a small segue here, where it also has the stocks gone in favor of putting the buttons on the steering wheel face. 
but that has conventional steering. So anytime you're going to be going like through a corner or something and actually you probably have your turn signals on, um, you're going to be going hand over hand and your, your turn signal buttons are going to be going this way and mm-hmm. that and aren't going to be easy to get to and might yeah. be facing different directions. So that's a whole thing. And well, also, I remember, to be fair, I remember that being a criticism of the Ferrari Italia. Oh, yeah. When that came out. Yeah, yeah, it's not a, it's not an exclusively Tesla. It's like it's a problem no matter who did it. The other thing, well, and, and the thing is, the Ferrari does it because I believe it has the gigantic paddle shifters. Yes, and if you they put, do need to have space for that, whereas you so, don't on the Tesla. Yeah. So either your paddle shifters are far away, or your signal. I mean, if you have like, if you drive an Alfa Romeo, they kind of have the same shifters, and the 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 stocks are kind of in weird places and they get in the way. So like th- that's why, and it's a Ferrari Italia. So they make eight of the, or I think Ferraris, sorry, I, I have not driven a modern Ferrari. So I, I do not know how that, I'm assuming they still have those, um, but it's less of a deal because a lot fewer people buy them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and then one last thing with the steering wheel. So when I first hopped into the truck, I realized that something that I rely on a lot with kind of like taller vehicles is grabbing onto the steering wheel to kind of help me lift inside. That's not so easy when like that usable grab handle is either non-existent or like really low and kind of small. (laughs) I did that in the Lexus. I definitely did that when I was driving the RZ. With the steer by wire. And and adding to that, there's no like a pillar grab handle either. So that it's makes... in the screen. It's in the right, screen. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so so interior I mean it's got foibles and stuff, but there are some positives. The exterior This is the uncontroversial part, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. The exterior I I mean, I still don't like the design, but what was what really shocked me was the finish on the panels. Mm-hmm. They so like I'm not I'm not that nitpicky about um, panel gap and fitment. Like I think for the most part, people don't really even notice. It's not good. <laughs> so I'm using that to preface the fact that. It's really bad on this. Um, there are some pictures in uh, our kind of first look of it where it's like on the A-pillar where like the fender and the A-pillar meet. It's like weirdly tight and like just not flush. And then there are other places where it's just really far apart and other places where they just mismatch by a whole bunch. And a lot of this stuff also stands out a lot when you just have sheer flat panels with just straight edges so anytime any of that is off stands out a lot because it's not really being hidden by any other kind of detailing or curves or anything but a bigger deal than that is just every single panel because something that you may not like consciously realize with modern cars is that almost every single panel the sheet metal has been like bent over So you get a nice smooth edge that's not like going to catch on things and isn't going to like, and doesn't like hurt to touch. 
this is basically just like unfinished edges of metal. I mean, I think they've been given like just the very bare minimum of like being filed down, but they're they're rough and can be kind of sharp. And some of the corners that have been like cut, they're not they're not that crisp or smooth. I think it's probably in part due to the fact that like they're using this stupid thick, stupid hard steel that they can't bend very well. And it's probably difficult to cut and file down. So the result is you get these really rough finishes. Um, it it's not it's not nice, and I'm and I will not be surprised if there are people that like scrape themselves and cut themselves occasionally on stuff. Um, and also, like a lot of people were saying, like stainless steel appliances, this thing is a magnet and dirt. This thing is a fingerprint and dirt magnet. The one on the floor was just covered in fingerprints everywhere along like the door edges where you're going to like close the door and open the door and like um and just kind of smears of sort of like dirt and stuff can can you take it to a car wash i think so i mean i mean it's just uh, i don't know i've never taken my stove to a car wash that sounds like a good seo story guys i don't know can you take a cyber truck to a car wash and then you just get a, just get like a six pack of pine saw and like just wipe it down in your driveway. <laughs> I mean, if Elon Musk had asked me, I could have told him when we got stainless steel faucets, some of them get very smudged, especially when you have like a kindergartner at home. So that's why when we continued our faucet renovation, we did not go with stainless steel. We went with brushed nickel, much, much easier to clean and maintain. Well, and I mean, I even remember reading stuff about uh, DeLorean owners complaining about how hard it was to keep their cars clean. And I think that was probably exacerbated by the fact that those are a brushed finish. So, I mean, the result is you have these very, very fine little (laughs) grooves in the metal that can accumulate dirt. The Tesla, at least, is more of a smooth finish. So hopefully it's a little bit easier to get dirt off of it, but it's still like it it picks it up fast and easy (laughs) for me the biggest question about the cyber truck is will they make as many of them as they say they are going to make because if you make in the tens of thousands ultimately hundreds of thousands right we're going to see a lot of these things and some of these flaws aren't just going to be this novelty like you saw a card in auto show and we spent 20 minutes talking about it it's kind of crazy when you think about it when there's thousands of these things on the road, these flaws are going to be very apparent. And to me, it's going to really determine a good chunk of Tesla's like fate. You know, the stock market is going to lose its mind if the Cybertruck is having all of these problems in mass production. Uh, people are going to not want to buy them. I think you're going to get past that early adopter phase that's willing to put up with like literally anything. And then they're going to say, well, I don't want my car to be smudged every three days. And that's going to cause problems. And I mean, the rear view mirror is problematic. Uh, It feels like there's a lot of challenges that will make a mass production vehicle like this perhaps very unappealing. So, I mean, for what it's worth, I think the design is cool. I mean, an electric truck like this. I mean, it has all the like the tenants of which should be a successful product, but it also sounds like a 
modern dumpster fire version of the DeLorean. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they've started making them, so I'm guessing they can probably continue making them. Um, but the, the, I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's not that different than like it's like Tesla's sports car. That's that's how I view it. It has, it'll be, it'll be, it has minimal, like, general consumer appeal because it's weird, and. I, I mean, I, I don't, I have serious beefs, obviously, with uh, some choices made, but I mean, it's also like, it, it's a weird, niche bizarrely designed thing, kind of like sports cars used to be. And I do think that this, there's a ceiling on how many they can sell because of the inherent, um, just, I'm not going to call them flaws, but the inherent limitations of the the body style, whatever that may be. Um, and we saw it with the X. I mean, we've literally seen it already with Tesla. The Model X does not sell in like the huge numbers. And it's not just because of the price tag. I mean, that has part of to do with it, but it's also the functionality that comes with the price tag. It is not a very functional three-row SUV like another three-row SUV would be. Those, the Falcon wing doors, while very cool, are bizarre, and I know there have been uh, product problems with them. So there's there's a hindrance on that uh, in that way, not unlike all of these things in the Cybertruck. There's just like a hundred of them in the Cybertruck. Um, so I think it's it has a ceiling and it's not like it. If you want a more conventional truck, the Rivian's there, the, the Lightning's there, the Silverado EV will be somewhere over the rainbow. Um, it, it's you know it has it has a limited ceiling and that's fine. But let's not try and make it a bigger deal than it is because of that. Now the tricky part too, though, is is Tesla isn't totally treating it that way. They have a factory that'll build 125,000 per year, and they say they have a million hand raisers that have put down some form of deposit or some sort of an agreement. So I, I agree with you, James. I kind of said it myself that, you know, this is like a, a niche product. It's like a version of the Roadster uh, or whatever they end up doing with the sports car. You're probably fine. But when you have an enormous factory, almost as big as the Rouge plant in Dearborn, in Texas to make these things, it seems like that could be a problem for their, you know, their business model. Well, so like, I, I agree that like, this is going to be much more of kind of that niche halo sports kind of vehicle. And it's, and they can, they can try and say it's supposed to be like this new mainstream revolution of the pickup truck. It just isn't it's it's not going to win and it's not going to win over truck buyers like this is designed for the person that is like all in on crazy tesla-ness yeah it's it's i think it's yeah i think it's a very bro bro car like yeah, I tech, will... tech bro yeah it's uh you're gonna go home to your uh, mojo dojo casa and you want <laughs> your your cyber truck parked out front I mean, like if they didn't have the the Hummer and the Barbie movie, Ken would have driven a Cybertruck. Yeah, without question. 
Now, what I will say, though, that thing got so much attention on the floor. And this was just, this was on press days. Now, granted, the people that, like, I could recognize as other automotive media were checking it out because, I mean, this is our first and potentially only time that we will have a chance to get up close with one. And there was significant skepticism and criticism among the like actual media and press. The people that were there that were not like identifiably like journalists were just like, Whoa, this is so cool. And like all excited and swarming it and checking it out. And even up close were like, wow, this is really, really neat. And I imagine that will be the reaction for a lot of, like just average people cuz cuz it is it doesn't look like anything else out there for all kinds of reasons <laughs> but all yeah right. i i think like actual buyers will probably be just the hardcore well i think we can thank Elon Musk for giving us about almost almost half an hour not quite of a podcast um, but once you start talking Cybertruck, it's, it's tough to stop, but we've got some other things we want to get to. So let's talk about what it's like to have your own EV charger for a year. Uh, I guess that's a pretty good segue from electric truck to electric charger. Uh, this one was the, uh, the wall box, good name for an electric charger. Uh, this is the Pulsar Plus, which I think is a fantastic name actually in general. Uh, what was this like, James? And what did you learn? Well, yeah, I've, I've had it for, I had it for a month. Uh, the Wallbox Pulsar Plus, imagine a square that just kind of like a, a rounded square kind of thing. Um, it's only about the size of a dinner plate, I'd say. And it has, That's cool. the, there's, there's no buttons or anything on it. Just a simple, uh, it, it has a, a ring within it that glows different colors depending on its, on its mode. Um, because of that shape, it actually serves as its own um, wire management system. So you don't need to have like a secondary thing there. The wire itself is 25 feet long. Apparently that is the longest a wire a charge cord can currently be. Um, this is a great thing because you don't need to put it as close as humanly possible to wherever your car is going to be. I, I have it in the middle of my garage. Um, this is kind of, a lot of this test is like to do with my unusual situation of owning an electric car, but then needing to charge all the other electric cars that might be out there. So I wanted to be able to have it parked the the Nero. I have an electric Nero in the in inside the garage. The Nero is weird because it has its charge port at the front of the car, which makes it kind of easy to charge at any time. But most other cars have them on the right rear. Um, so the, that that long charge cord really allows me to leave it in the garage, but then run the cord outside. That was good. Um, the other thing, this is this is one of this is a premium charger, so it isn't just it, it does have more functionality. Some of the functionality is that um, is the long charge cord, but this is one that has forty amp and forty eight amp versions. The 40 amp ones can be hardwired or they can, if you already have a 240 volt uh, house outlet, you can just plug it in very simply. Um, so then you don't have to install it at all if it's if you already have that charger. I did need to install it. 
Uh, Wallbox, again, to full disclosure, Wallbox provided us with this device to test like we do any number of other products. However, unlike a car or a Yakima roof box, this thing's now attached to my house, so it's kind of hard to send it back to them. Um, so uh, a company called Coil uh, installed it for me, um, and it was pretty easy. All I did was they, they sent me like, we need pictures of like these four things, where the box will be, your electrical panel, um, just to know that this is, uh, that that's it. No one came out beforehand to double check. That was it. There was a couple of back and forth, you know, is this, is this possible? And COIL is C-O-I-L. Um, and I, I, that's, that's one thing that I would recommend because I thought that this company was very easy to work with. Um, and they did, a, the one technician did a really good job, clean, everything looked really good afterwards. Yeah, final cost for installation was 1095 with $550 for permits and inspections. But of course that is related to Agoura Hills, California, your town would, would be different. Um, the Pulsar Plus, I got the 48 amp version. So this is the, the top of the line, the most powerful one. It's kind of future-proofed um, so that when, when cars can uh, charge even faster than this, it, it's, it's capable of doing that. My house limited it down to 40. So you're, I would have had to get a new um, uh, electrical box to take advantage of the 48 amp, but it, it's fine. I mean, like I, I can still rapidly charge things. It's not really holding me back on that part. Um, it's really, if you, if you have a Lucid, you could really <laughs> let her rip with a 48 amp. Otherwise, uh, everything else is going on 40. Um, but in terms of some of the extra features, um, you can schedule your charging. Now, a lot of cars can do this, that actually all EV chargers can come on as you like. But with this, because I have multiple cars, I can just do one setting. And I can do it so that, say, I can do it to match off-peak hours. I can do it as I currently am to match peak sun hours, because I now have uh, a solar panel system on my roof. Now, because my solar panel system isn't the size of Cincinnati, I, I cannot actually charge the entire car very quickly at full blast using solar power. It's actually not a lot at all. It's only about 2.5 kilowatts uh, full sun at this moment in February. It's probably gonna go up as the sun goes on. So one of the elements that's nice about the wall box is you can quote, kind of throttle down the amount of output. So you can, I, I can equalize the amount of input from the sun to the output of the charger and kind of just run off the sun and be carbon neutral in that way. Um, and then if when necessary, you know, like we've had a couple of days without a lot of sun or where my wife wasn't parked at home during the day, I can throttle back up and give it full blast and get it done in five hours, no problem at all. Um, so that, that's, been a, that's been a nice um, part of the charger being able to change the amount. The other thing is you can get a part, I don't have it, don't really need it, but there's a, um, there's, there's an accessory you can get that you install with the wall box and it effectively allows it to throttle itself down automatically based on your current power usage. And this is important because let's say that your 
uh, electrical box cannot handle 40 amps of this charger going while your stove and fridge and all the other and air conditioner are going at the same time. So instead of blowing out and hitting the breaker every time your car goes on, it automatically adjusts itself for your current power uh, limit. So this means that even though if your electrician says, oh no, you can't do this, you actually can because it monitors itself. That same element also allows you to have two wall boxes that then so you can have two of them in the same electrical panel and they'll automatically adjust to each other, working with each other and the system. So if you have two electric cars, then then that makes it possible. So it, it, there's th those would be the above and beyond elements of this. Um, so yeah, it, it's been a it's been a good experience. There's a lot there. I, I go into full depth, uh, obviously, in the uh, article, um, just about how the app works and some of the advantages there. Um, yeah, I, 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 ex I experienced it with a whole bunch of different cars. And yeah, so it's, uh, it's a cool system. And because of actually one thing I will know is one problem with electric car adoption you know, public fast charging is mentioned a lot. But part of the reason public fast charging is such an issue is because a lot, if you live in a condo or an apartment, you can't have home charging. So, you know, this ability to link up to 25 of these wall boxes together and have them work together is something that could theoretically work for name a condo or an apartment complex. So this is in fact a solution for that. Um, now, obviously your apartment or condo has to install them, but it, it does make it, it possible to do that. Um, so that, that was one element I, I thought. And, and Wallbox, the company, actually does most of, the, a lot of their business in Europe with multi-unit multi buildings for this very reason. And they have its own app that allows you to maintain all of them together almost like an, an admin situation rather than an individual user. So for, you know, from as an individual user or being able to see the, the options, both if you have a solar system or if you are a multi-unit complex, like this, I, I was able to kind of experience why some, if not this, then something like this really has its advantages. No, that's, I think that's a really good point. And I'm honestly, I'm a, Kind of jealous. I've never had an opportunity to have a home charger. Uh, when I had an apartment way back, uh, I actually ran an extension cord out the window to charge the, uh, the Chevy Volt, which is something we're going to talk about here. Well, right now, uh, you had a pretty good opinion piece. Uh, it was one of our top clickers. It got a lot of discussion going on the site about General Motors fits and starts in the electric vehicle space. Um, I think it's interesting. Another one of our contributors, Jonathan Ramsey, when he saw it go up, he immediately slacked me. He's like, hey, I got to reply to that. So as we all know, he's got, you know, he's got some opinions. So I can't wait to read that. And, you know, it's interesting as I look at some of these different, uh, you know, examples you, you mentioned, we were even talking about uh, the almost, we called it like pointless hybrid week. Uh, when I was testing these in another car magazine of these enormous SUVs that had light hybrid systems that got like no real discernible, better fuel economy. Uh, the Volt, I think is, you could write a book on that. I think people have, um, but I guess state your case here. 
So I think the main point is, is like canceling, I have no problem with canceling vehicles that people aren't buying, right? Mm -hmm. So, or is, or is making your company hemorrhage money? Like mm -hmm. I am not opposed to that. I'm not, I'm not here saying like, keep selling cars that no one wants, no. The problem is the cars themselves were kind of, for various reasons, were flawed from the get-go and not set up for success. Um, starting from the Volt. Mm -hmm. So the Volt initially came out and it was this really cool concept car that everybody really like, wow, that thing looks cool. And then they came out with the, the production car and like, well, kind of not surprisingly, if you look at the concept car, um, it didn't really look the same. So that was kind of a like sad trombone deflating balloon moment. And then the Volt itself, it sat only four people. It did not have a three-person back seat, which immediately hampered its functionality versus a Prius for, for one. The back seat was also cramped. So as a car itself, it was compromised, even though its powertrain was great. I mean, that thing got about, they have since changed the Volt's um, range estimates on the EPA from that era, but it was basically 40, 42 miles, mm -hmm. which name a PHEV today that has that number, and it's not many of them. They're still mostly in the 30s. So it was, it was still ahead of its time. Um, really enjoyable to drive because, you know, all that battery weight, all those reasons we like electrified cars now, still there. It was an enjoyable car to drive. Great car in the city. Um, but the car was kind of fundamentally flawed. Um, if, and it was weird looking too, so the second generation less weird, but now it doesn't get any attention because it's, it's kind of boring it, at that point. Exactly. They just didn't get it. Like it now had five seats, but like it... And then the Bolt. So that's also amazing technological achievement. The engineers really hit it out of the park in, a, in an era when EVs were getting like 110 miles. It was like 250, 240, right? Whatever it was, it just like doubled it. Huge achievement. Unfortunately, it was pretty dorky. They tried to sell it as a crossover, but uh, yeah, that's, that's an upright kind of dorky hatchback looking thing. And shockingly, people were like, eh, I'd rather not be seen in that. They have since actually the mid-cycle refresh on it. It's, I think, was very successful. Had that, had it looked like that from the get-go, I think it could have been marginally more successful. Um, not to mention a lot cheaper than it is as, as it is as it is now slash was because it's now no longer on sale. And then, and then there's just, I mean, th those are the big ones in terms yeah. of like not giving people what they want. But then the other thing is that Voltec hybrid powertrain that was so good, they didn't put it in anything. Like, yes, it was in the Cadillac ELR, a car that was so hilariously priced. We thought it was a joke and so hilariously overpriced. It was like they didn't want to sell them and they didn't. There's so, actually, And there's actually one other thing that got Voltec based technology and that was the chevy malibu hybrid it's just yes. it's just that it didn't have the whole battery it didn't have as big a battery to charge exactly and, it, and in the malibu yeah. it was really very good yeah i i mentioned that in the article 
Because I draw. I'm like one of the say you and me must be yeah. one of the few people who actually drove the damn I thing. I actually drove it too. So I, we've got three people on a podcast out of probably ten people in the world who drove well, this. Well, it must have been. Maybe it was in Michigan more because like it it just disappeared, and it was really good. And you know what? Because it basically works like Honda system. Yeah. Voltec without the plug and Honda's system are very similar. It is, it runs off the electric motor most mm -hmm. and the engine with rare exception only comes in to, to, to redo the battery. And it's the same deal with Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid too. It's the same sort of roughly series hybrid design where yes. again, like you get, cause what, cause that's one of the things that's so great about it is that especially in a plug-in situation, where even when you're running in full EV, you still have all of the power that you would get, mm -hmm. at least with the exception of like sustained full throttle where like you need the engine to come on. But yeah. for the most part, like so many other plug-in hybrids, you're only getting like half of your power, if that, if you're running in full EV mode. And that's kind of a, that's kind of disappointing when it's like, you have this 300 horsepower thing, but if you want to be like the greenest that you can be, you can only use like 100 or 150 of it. And then it's, and you're carrying around a lot more weight. That, and that was one of the things that was, that was great about the Volt and Voltex stuff was that, you know, you actually got all, you still had all of your power even when you were being green. Yeah. Well, that, and, and to bring it back, you know, the impetus for this is the fact that GM announced it's making hybrids again. But I mean, that, that just follows up a decision not to keep making them in the first place, which like we're on board for EVs. EVs great. Way to, way to keep going on EVs. And I, I can acknowledge a company saying, you know, why develop hybrids when it costs so much money to develop the end game, which is EVs? Fair enough. GM had already developed the hybrids and had very good hybrid technology. So, you know, you mentioned the, 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 the Tahoe hybrid and it was a little silly for its day, but it was, it was actually, it was a, it was, it was a hybrid and, you know, 20 miles, the difference between 20 miles per gallon and 18 miles per gallon is actually kind of big. Um, so it was a little half baked at the time, but imagine that's step one. What if they had kept developing that and Chevy could have immediately an answer to the to the the F150 hybrid which is excellent. Ford didn't stop. Ford's been doing hybrids for for ages back since the the old square escape hybrid. Um they didn't stop and that's where they are now. So we could be looking at a a Silverado hybrid that gets good power and good fuel economy because it was back there but nope they killed that. Um, we could be looking at, you know, hybrids. It's one thing to say, okay, well, let's just, no one's going to be interested in this Equinox hybrid because we don't put a lot of effort into marketing it and it doesn't look any different. But, you know, you, you have the technology. It's there and it's good. You're not, you don't have to license somebody else's. It's just sitting there. And when they, when they canceled it, it just seemed short-sighted and just not really utilizing this investment you already. It didn't make sense. Well, and I was about to say, because well, you, you mentioned Equinox Hybrid, and it's like, I don't know why that wasn't a thing. 
because it's like you have this great technology and you keep putting it in packages that don't necessarily sell. You are putting them in weird hatchbacks that either weren't all that useful or looked kind of dorky, or you put them in sedans, which is a, which is a flagging market. And maybe you were doing that just for maximum fuel economy. But like, imagine if you had that Malibu hybrid powertrain in the Equinox, that would be, that'd be superb because then you would have something that sells a whole lot. It's very practical and Mm -hmm. then suddenly very efficient. And my guess is that part of why they didn't do it was because, hey, why not do a diesel? (laughs) Which, you know, it's it's easy to look back on with 2020 vision. And I mean, that was probably in development before Dieselgate happened. But yeah, even so. Even with Equinox, we could be looking at this platform cannot accept Voltec. And therefore, this is not possible. We could also not be looking at you know what what are, how many hybrids does Fortis sell with the Escape? Because that's like you cannot tell a Ford Escape hybrid from a regular one. That's what we're looking at, and um, we could be you know Chevrolet does not have even though they've sold the Volt, people do not think of them as hybrids. That's that's a Toyota thing, um, so maybe it wouldn't get any attention. But perhaps instead of you know selling a high, why don't you come out with a Equinox sized hybrid? Like we're, we're maybe we're just talking about door number three here that doesn't exist, but they had the opportunity, and it just seems, yeah, it's like the the engineers do their job, but I'm not going to say the designers aren't, but they're not they're not they're not nailing the design the overall concept of the vehicle. They're definitely not marketing it sufficiently because the Volt was never marketed. No, no one. Dealers, they could not overcome dealers having absolutely no interest in selling these things. First, because it was confusing and they'd have to put some effort into it. And then two, the Bolt, they want no parts of electric cars because they can't sell you on expensive service for years to come. Um, so, So therefore, no one wants to sell them. So they, they couldn't, they never tried to overcome that as they kind of have to now. So it's like they, they just kind of shot themselves in the foot. They were working against themselves while putting all this money and great money and effort into engineering. It's just, it, they should be better. They shouldn't be in this position. They should be in a better position. Yeah. And I think, I do think some of it was they thought their electric rollout was going to go much, much more smoothly and much more quickly. Because I do kind of remember them being like, okay, well, well, like you were saying, we don't want to spend a whole lot of money and time developing these hybrids because electric technology is accelerating very quickly. That's where everything's going to end up. We just, we want to get, we want to get ahead on that. And I feel like there was also a lot of pressure from the outside too. Like, hey, look at all the stuff that Tesla's doing. Why can't any of the big three do that? And so they kind of came out with this big, like, okay, we're going to do this whole Altium stuff. Um, And it seems like clearly something went wrong in this whole Altium thing. I'm not sure what it was. I I did see um, John Volker, he's a journalist, had a pretty good story kind of, that touched on something that may be related. 
all of the Ultium development stuff is being done completely in-house. There's not really a partnership with like LG or other companies that already have battery experience. So that may be kind of contributing to the problems that they've got a lot of, they're doing stuff that they haven't done really traditionally before. And that may be kind of the hang up. So I, I can kind of see how they were like, we're going to just kind of skip hybrids, but also that's clearly come back to nip them in the bud. Like you can, you can skip hybrids, but it's the development of the hybrid powertrain. Like it's like, yeah, they, hybrid, they, Toyota they has it. their hybrid system and they're throwing it and they put it in everything. Yeah. And, and they're not like, developing a new hybrid powertrain every time they have to put it in a new car. It's, it's, it's cut and paste. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. With the exception, of course, they now have, they did do a next generation one that's in the Prius and they have a totally separate hybrid system. You know, I, what is it, iForce or whatever the hybrid max. Oh well, yeah. That is, that is a totally different hybrid concept. But, but they still sell a we, ton we've of already like mentioned the that there's the GM truck hybrid is different than the Volt. They are not the same concept. So th they too had multiple concepts. Yeah. And it's it definitely feels like a very GM thing to roll out this really impressive technology only to abandon it very quickly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> either Either because of technical problems or because of colossal mismanagement, which in this case, it seems to be the, the latter. That's the single biggest criticism I can levy. I think I've driven most, if not all of these products, and in many cases, I've liked them while being cognizant of perhaps trying to cram them into different market segments and maybe not giving them the best chance for success. Uh, but I mean, generally speaking, they at times have had class leading hybrids and EVs, but the inconsistency of the strategy is the part that blows my mind. I mean, when you know Rizwick rolls out the term Voltec, that takes me back to 2008 and going to a reveal of the Volt at the Renaissance Center in Detroit with every governor, senator you can think of. Bob Lutz did like in-depth brief things on this car. Literally, they could have put something on the moon and not made it a bigger deal than that. They called this a moonshot. So, yeah. I mean, stick with it, man. Like you literally turned the industry on its ear for a few years and then they walked, you know, kind of walked away from it. To me, sometimes I think you have to almost when the market zigs, you need to zag. And that to me is the biggest criticism because I think most of these products have been pretty good. You know, the execution, yeah, the EVs, like the rollout in the last year, which even the CEO, Mary Barra said has been, uh, I think she called it frustrating. I would call it a dumpster fire. But the fact is, is they have like a handful of pretty good EVs. If they could get them in the market, they could really win there. So I think that's the to be the second biggest criticism is just the execution has been so scattershot. And that's kind of the way to just describe your column and the last 15 years, 17 years of EVs at GM, 30 years of EVs at GM, if you want to go back to the EV1, is like they roll out this like spectacular product that maybe is flawed a little bit, but how many times in the car business do you get it right in the first generation? It's like the second generation or that refresh when it finds its traction and people like it. And I mean, who has more money than General Motors when it comes to marketing? If they had consistently messaged some of these things, I mean, we'd probably all be driving Chevy Volts or something, but it just seemed like 
there's so many different mouths to feed at GM that that's where it gets lost too. So, um, I mean, I guess there's one company that really was into GM's EV technology and that's Honda. They literally were like, hey, let's make a prologue out of it. And you drove it, James. How was it? I sure did. And uh, it's not great. Um, and here's the thing. Um, it is. It looks like a Honda outside, but yeah. You open up the door and it doesn't. It's all GM parts. Now, uh, there'll be a lot of people who go, ew, that's bad, but that's not what I'm here to say because the GM parts are not the problem. The problem is the execution of them because uh, it's not surprising that uh, if you, you, you look at the interior of the prologue and if you put it next to a CRV, they kind of look similar, but it looks like exactly what they were trying to do, which is like recreate the um, the look of their standard, you know, vertical or horizontal strip uh, dash design using GM parts. It's not successful because you do not have the same parts. It's going to look different. And because it doesn't have that intricate honeycomb thing, which carries a lot of weight as it turns out, it just looks plain. It looks plain and um, the, the center console plastics are kind of cheap and scratchy and just has this big expanse of a like a like a tablet sized tray and it it looks it looks cheap. And this isn't a GM thing because the Blazer, which is this car's kind of fraternal twin, is a much nicer interior. And so does the CRV. So it's not the GM parts that are the problem. Now, it is a problem because of perception and because of who's gonna buy these cars. Now, Honda, people who buy Hondas are a very loyal bunch. You, my, my mother has owned four of them going back to 1990 when she was tired of dealing with succession of annoying GM vehicles and just got into Honda, and I know a lot of people who are like this, they trust it, they know how to, even if it's just, um, they, they just trust the brand, they're Honda people. And then the other thing is you have, because of you have loyal customers, anytime you have loyal customers to a brand, you get into their cars and you know how to turn on the lights. Everything is where they know where things are. And when they get into something else, be it a new car or a rental car, different, quote, different, tends to be equated to, quote, bad. This is bad. Not just, well, you just don't know how to work it. It's, it's just, it's just a different way to turn a screw, whatever. But now you're going to get into this car and the lights are different. The windshield wipers are different. That doesn't look like my, that doesn't look like my climate control system. This is weird. This is different. This is not what I was expecting. Or worse, you don't notice that. Oh, it's just different. My car's 10 years old, whatever. Um, and then you find out a week after you've bought this thing as a loyal uh, Honda customer that, oh no, it was built by GM in Mexico um, using GM parts. You'd be pissed off. I'm sorry, you would be, regardless of whether you are a loyal customer of anything. If you find out that what you purchased is not what you think, what you thought it is, you would be pissed off. And I don't think it's entirely reasonable 
I don't think it's unreasonable to ex sorry, I think it's an unreasonable to expect someone to, you know, Google, was my Honda actually made by Honda? No one would think to do that. Um, unless they previously got hosed by a 98 passport. So, like, I, I think that is an issue for them. Now, they are not like hiding it. They're not like saying, oh, what are you talking about, GM? No, this was, this was, this was made in Ohio. No, but like, it's not like you're going to advertise that, right? And then dealers, are they going to be like, well, actually, if you notice, this is made by GM and this is a GM thing. So I, I think that's, that's an issue. Now, they, they acknowledge <clears throat> that that could be a hang-up for folks. And because it's an EV, because of its size, and because of its, of its DNA, they, they say that, you know, we anticipate people interested in that are people with an open mind. And customers of the CRV hybrid and the Passport, who are already kind of open to new different types of vehicles. That's who they're going to go for, which is which is all well and good. Um, but it, I think I think that's a big problem f for this. Um, because even if they, they're not trying to pull the, the wool over someone's eyes, but it's, it seems likely to happen, which is really unfortunate. And then there's the vehicle itself. So it's, it's not very quick. Like I only drove the, the, the dual, the, the, the all wheel drive two motor version. And it's, it's, it's just not that quick, not just for an EV. It just doesn't have a lot. If I was talking about an engine, I wouldn't, I would say there's not a lot on the top end. Um, it's only about a 200 some horsepower for the front drive version. Like the CRV hybrid has more power than, than this. And they didn't have a curb weight spec, which seemed questionable, but I mean, I'm guessing it's more than a CRV hybrid. So it ain't quick. The price tag really isn't that much different than an Ionic 5, etc., or like an Aria. So I, I, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't drive like a Honda. No, it doesn't. But then like anytime you're talking about an EV versus um, an ICE version, that, that's kind of hard to, to determine anyway. But it, it was just, the, the only saving grace in terms of value is that it's likely going to get the $7,500 tax credit. So that, that drops the price quite a bit. And because of that, the cheaper versions, which will be available from the beginning, unlike the Blazer EV, um, which is when they eventually go back on sale, what is only like the top trim levels immediately. Um, so you'll be able to get, you know, a front wheel drive EX from the get-go, but you know, I, I, I'm not surprised. This is the only time they're going to be doing this. This is the 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 marriage is already kaput. I always thought it was a weird arrangement. GM at the time they announced this, Ultium. You know, this was before we'd seen some of the fits and starts of Ultium, and it seemed a little, I thought, questionable on the part of General Motors. Why are you giving this prize technology to Honda so they could catch up to you? They got nothing. What are you doing? And then a couple of years later, you're like, oh, boy, some of your Ultium launches didn't go too well. And the pendulum kind of went the other way. And it's like, okay, Honda, what are you doing? You know, so to me, this is one of those alliances that uh, frankly didn't make a ton of sense. Uh, maybe on paper it did, but I mean, I don't know. I think 
the best thing you can say about the prologue is it kind of looks okay. Um, I think it does subjective. It's, it's I fine. like the blazer better, to be honest. I think yeah. the blazer looks way better, way you more. Should. The Equinox EV looks pretty good. So, I mean, I kind of think that part of how this partnership may have arisen is that a few years back, Honda announced Honda and GM announced that they would be collaborating on fuel cell development. So that may be where some of this kind of came from. Um, the only, the only other thing that I can really think of that was Honda and GM connected was the Saturn view red line that got the Honda yeah. V6, <laughs> yeah. which was a super bizarre thing. I still don't know how that came about. That was not a terrible car. I, or, crossover i drove one of those i actually kind of like the whole saturn green line red line mm -hmm. setup uh but we're really going deep into early 2000s trivia here at this point i guess yeah. you but want the, the go ahead so i was going to say the the, the the one one bow on this is that the prologue is not the only thing there's the acura zdx yes and i'm going to be driving that in april and palm springs um, or san diego i'm sure they're excited uh, santa, to see barbara. <laughs> santa barbara santa barbara Third and one on the bingo prologue card. prologue wasn't great i mean i'll just leave you this look google the interiors of an acura mdx the new acura zdx not the original one but the new one and then the cadillac lyric and tell me which of these interiors does not belong and i gotta tell you it's the zdx it doesn't look it looks more like the prologue that's i yeah i that i the skepticism will be high on that one i like the lyric i really did i thought it was good good uh good crossover handsome interior and i think it's ironic that these honda versions uh managed to get some of the Honda things wrong um, in the execution. Mm -hmm. It does not help your brand, especially when Acura is trying to build its brand again. Mm -hmm. And you get this thing that, like, yeah, it's a shame. Well, a brand that actually is in pretty good shape is BMW. Uh, you've got the i5 and the X1. So I'd say the products are in good shape. Just what I just said, the i5 and the X1, alpha numeric and numeric alpha. That's not great. That's a little confusing. But give me the uh, the nickel tour here of these two. What, what do you think, James? Uh, quick thing, X1, I liked it a lot more than I thought it would. It's actually like okay. very yeah. like fun car to drive. The transmission, uh, it's the dual clutch. I did not care for that. That's kind of stuttering to start sometimes uh but the interior is beautiful like legit not just like for the segment it's like really nice and yeah i have the m sport package so there's like the, there's like pleather on the dash but like really cool design elements the speaker grills in particular really cool the center console is also very like really interesting functionality in it like just take a look at the photo of a bmw x1 interior looks great it's really cool uh, very impressive, stands out for the class. Also has lots of space inside of it for its size. Not quite as big as like a GLB, but that's like a little like warehouse on wheels. Um, the i5, that's the first 5 Series that hasn't saddened or infuriated me in like, well, forever, because I never drove an E39. So 
Um, the in also incredibly cool interior. Google that one too. Um, the the when I got in, it had this cool like like blue trim level blue trim on the dash, and I thought, okay, that's a neat design element. Like the uh, BMW has done that before with color on the dash. I remember, I think the last generation three series with an M Sport package, you get red or blue, it was cool. Um, and then as he's want to do, my son asked me to change the interior ambient color because he just oh, loves that. Mercedes, kids love doing that. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that whoever decided to put 64 color ambient lighting in Mercedes has a toddler who just like mm -hmm. goes nuts and that's why they do it. Anyway, so he asked me to do that and I was like, okay, let's see change it to pink and that trim level that I thought was painted plastic is the ambient lighting that can change to all these different colors. It's super cool. Like I thought that it's a simple thing, but it's much better than just like obviously just like diffuse lighting. It's the trim level. It's the trim panel that that's so cool. Um, so you can contrast it with the exterior. You can complement it. It's pretty cool. Um, the air vents in it are kind of hidden. And they're controlled with these, instead of like going into the touch screen like the Panamera does, and I'm sure Tesla does, um, has these little rubbery nubs under the dash that work. They, they feel nice and they actually do their thing. So fine, functionality, and it, it maintains a minimalist look without cheapening out because that little nub, that costs more money than doing the screen thing. Um, although there's not motors that move those things around. So maybe, I don't know, there's a wash, who knows? Um, so like really cool interior, BMW's latest iDrive, big, like small, but big improvements in terms of functionality. You don't need to go click, click, click in order just to turn on the, uh, the heated seats in the, in the touch screen. Um, the five, the, the, that goes for both the X1 and the i5 because they have the same latest iDrive, but the i5, I'm guessing because it's, it's a higher product, has the redundant iDrive knob still, which is really nice because sometimes zooming in on a map or going through playlists or whatever, some things are just easier done with a knob and it still has it. And it still has the physical menu button. So really like that. Um, it's also really lovely to drive. Like it's BMW, to, you know, they've been doing electric vehicles going back to the Mini E like 15 years ago or something. So it's it's a well thought out thing. It's good range. I had the rear drive version. Frankly, after driving that, it was like, this is this is like it's 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 insane that they sell a more powerful version of this, let alone one that has over 200 horsepower more in the M60. Uh, there's going to be an X drive 40 to, to bridge the gap, but still like it's totally fine just to go with the rear drive one. Um, yeah, good range, tremendous uh, ride quality. And yeah, I drove it up a mountain road, very fun. I think it's one of the better looking of the new BMWs. The front, I still think is a bit of a mess. It has a black goatee for some reason. Um, but the back looks nice and the silhouette's okay. So could be worse. Cough, seven series. Um, so I, I liked both of them. Um, yeah, they're, they're BMWs that didn't sadden or infuriate me. Okay. I think one of the things that's really interesting and impressive is how good so many of BMW's electric cars have been. And the fact that 
it's on a, that they're platforms that are shared both electric and gas powered because that's such a that's such a different strategy to so many other automakers where like well i mean like gm is doing these like completely ground up new ev platforms and also like hyundai and kia that are just ev that's it they've been designed from the ground up for that and nothing else and i mean in some of those cases like the hyundai kia stuff are fantastic that i don't know i just think it's really interesting that like bmw is able to make these potentially class leading evs that are designed to handle both powertrains and don't suffer from it yeah well they do suffer from it that's not entirely accurate because the interior the packaging does suffer ah, because the interior is not as spacious as as eqe mm -hmm. um and the trunk is ignore that whatever cubic feet number is it's not applicable to any other car company because um, it's small and awkwardly shaped. It's not like like the old hybrid where you'd have like this giant suitcase sized stage in the back, but it is it is certainly compromised. Uh, and EQEs is a little bigger, um, but you know, and and if you open the hood there and you remove the uh, you move the cargo the the quote engine cover, there's a great big motor sized hole in under the hood. Now part of it will be filled by the the front motor if you had an all-wheel drive one so i'm sure if you looked at a hyundai you'd see a similar hole um but nevertheless there are some packaging limitations um, you also end up with a vehicle that's kind of high like you look at the black plastic the, the that glossy black trim at the bottom it's to hide the fact that that it is weirdly tall down underneath the doors although truthfully so, even like EVs that are designed from the ground up have often have a little bit of that. Yeah. Just because why they make why SUVs make for better. Exactly. Because you've got this big thick platform of batteries that you gotta you gotta put them somewhere. And it just makes sense to put them in the bottom. But I, I really like the i5, and honestly, I mean I unless you're I, I guess Michigan's a different story, but I mean don't worry about the dual motor version. That the rear wheel drive is like great performance, and you get better range because of it. And it's just fun. It's it's more than fun. It's it's great. Right? You could even slap some snow tires on it up here if you wanted to. And of course, it only really snowed twice this year with any you know consistency. And I mean, yeah, you might. You might actually be okay with a rear-wheel drive car. Is that the effect of climate change is rear-wheel drive cars are coming back more? We'll see. All right. We have had an epically long podcast. If you enjoy the show, that is uh, five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get the show. Uh, please give us five stars. We appreciate the ratings. It helps us get the word out, helps us connect with other car fans who maybe are searching through their iPhone or Google Pixel trying to find a car show, and that could be us. Uh, send us your Spend My Monies. That's podcast at autoblog.com. Be safe out there, and we will see you next week.